Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thanks, man. Uh, so good to see all of you here this morning. And uh, yeah, Wes, I will say this about the 0 for 7 thing. You have the best attitude of anybody I've ever seen that went 0 for 7 at a softball game. <laughs> I'll say that. I wish I had that same kind of attitude, but I appreciate that. Um, so the, during first service, I made the mistake of making a joke about the Green Bay Packers, and so I'm not going to do that second service, because I think somebody hissed at me first service, and I guess one thing to get booed, but once you get hissed, you just, you know, that's, that's a whole other level, and so I'm just going to say insert Green Bay Packer joke here, and you can insert your own Green Bay Packer joke, imagine what that might be, and then we can move on. So uh, we're going to start this morning uh, into Revelation chapter 13, continuing our series on the book of Revelation series called Revealed, and we have officially entered that place. In some ways, we've been in that place in the book of Revelation where like every week, we're, you know, it's designed to kind of get a reaction out of us in some ways. Um, maybe your reaction is that you really enjoy going through this. This is the part that you really enjoy about Revelation. Uh, maybe your reaction is that this is kind of the part that's not really your cup of tea because you're not into all the imagery and the symbolism, and you know that in the past as you've gone through this, this has been confusing for you. Maybe it's a little intimidating for you. Uh, one of the goals that we've had throughout this series is to make this book more accessible to you and to help you understand that this is a book that is full of hope and a book that God has designed for us to understand about His greater purposes and how it connects to the, the greater story of God's redemptive plan in the Bible. And so we've approached it maybe from a little bit of a different perspective than uh, some of you might be used to. I know that some of you have, have remarked to me, uh, you know, outside of Sunday mornings or even, you know, between services that, hey, we really appreciated this. Like, this has been a different way that we have gone through this. I haven't really heard it, you know, taught this way, and, and, and sometimes the words have been used new and different. Um, and, and then others have been a little bit more kind of reserved about it because they're like, well, this is different than what I thought it was about and maybe what I've been taught before and that kind of thing. And so I thought maybe just being where we're at in the book right now, we're about to get into Revelation 13. Uh, we're going to cover it over two weeks, this week and the next week. And in Revelation chapter 13, things, things start to get really hairy, if you will, uh, interpretation-wise. Like, there's a lot of things that start to kind of go in a bunch of different directions. And if we don't interpret this uh, faithfully and correctly, there's a chance we could kind of get off the rails here. Um, you know, and, and how, we, look, how we interpret Revelation for the most part is not a salvation issue. I mean, a lot of these things just are kind of speculation. But at the same time, you may know that how you interpret Revelation has a lot to do with how you understand it and how it impacts uh, your life. I used the example um, several weeks ago about, you know, speaking about the mark of the beast, for example, about how when I was growing up, I was taught that the mark of the beast could be something like applying for the wrong credit card, right? Like that's the mark of the beast. And so if you get the wrong credit card, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a follower of Jesus or not. That's evidence of the fact that you're allied to the beast and you will end up with the same kind of judgment that the beast has. And so that obviously has an impact on you, right? I mean, it actually has an impact maybe on your understanding of salvation in some ways as well. So I know that's an extreme example, but at the same time, right, the way that we might interpret these things have an impact. And so I just wanted to take a couple minutes before we get into this chapter that um, the if you know the chapter, the first half of the chapter, which is what we're going to look at today, is often the place where this figure of the beast coming out of the sea is a picture of, of what many might refer to as the Antichrist. And then the the second half of chapter 13 is the mark of the beast with a 666 thing. So you can anticipate this is going to be, this is going to be an adventuresome uh, a chapter, but I want to talk a couple of things before we get into this chapter 
about our approach that we've had throughout this series in interpreting. We have taken more the approach of what I would call, uh, what, what I would call a Christotelic approach. Um, the word, and, the, and the word telos is in that word, which means, telos is a Greek word that means goal or purpose or end. And of course, Christo means Christ. And so what we've been looking at through this series is how does this book speak ultimately to Jesus? How does it show us that the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal is Jesus and his kingdom? Not only does the book of Revelation present that to us, but really the entire biblical narrative presents that to us, especially from Genesis chapter 3 forward, as we looked at last week. And so we've approached it from that standpoint. We've also approached it from the standpoint of considering context to help us really interpret images and symbols. So that means a couple of things. First of all, it considers the wider context of the Bible. Where is the biblical story taking us? Since Revelation is a part of this story and really the end of the story, where has the story come to this point and where is it driving forward into Revelation? Also considering the context of the book itself, right? What is the purpose of this book and why was it written? Things like that, which we've talked a lot about. And then finally, you know, this, this idea of like when we come across an image or symbol, do we see that image or symbol anywhere else in Scripture? And does that allow us to then understand or help us to understand what might, being, what might be uh, being referred to in this particular example, in this particular image? And so if we were to say it's really about two things, uh, our interpretive approach, it's about two, two big C's. It's about Christ and it's about context. And I can't speak, I'm speaking mainly for myself right now, but I know Wes kind of has approached it in a similar way. But that has been, so when I say our approach, that's kind of the way that we have approached this. Now, that is in a little bit, and that, that's why things might seem different, because we're not approaching this from the standpoint of images and symbols are here for us to figure out so that we can assign them to a person or a kingdom or a nation or a particular time in history or an event in history, right? There are things that, uh, there are interpretations that are kind of, uh, you know, can, can be dominated by that and can be focused on that. That is not the place that we have chosen to focus our attention. We've instead tried to take a more balanced approach to interpreting the book of Revelation in that way. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the uh, Left Behind series, right, that, that, that kind of was really popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. The Left Behind series was kind of uh, built around the speculation of like what these images from Revelation might mean in real world events and kind of governments and kings and those kinds of things. That's not the way that we've decided to approach this. And so since I think a lot of people have been influenced by that, it seems a little bit different. But I can tell you that when, as, as we explain the way that we and, the why, and why are we are interpreting it the way that we are, hopefully this may makes a little bit more sense because rather than dwelling on those things in particular, our approach has been to take a more balanced interpretation that makes Jesus and his kingdom central to, this whole, to, the, to the whole thing. And I think sometimes you can get bogged down and distracted uh, interpreting things the other way. For instance, last week we talked about the red dragon with the, the seven heads. And in my research and preparing for last week, I came across a book, and I'll grant you this is another extreme example, but I came across a book where somebody had written a book about the dragon with seven heads being representative of the nation of China, right? Because it was red, I guess, I guess, I guess the, the communism connection, I don't know what it is, the red flag. I didn't read the book itself, and then the dragon connection to China and that kind of thing. And that's just an example of things can get kind of off the rails a little bit with this interpretation, especially when you consider just, the, just in the immediate context, the dragon is defined as Satan himself, right? And so it's kind of hard to miss in that way, but I think this is part of why we want to consider uh, it the way that we do. We're getting focused on the things that really matter and the things that are priority, okay? So again, these are probably in the most part not salvation type issues. We can disagree on the way we interpret these things, but in the end, what we want to focus on is Jesus and really the message of the entire Bible, how it comes together in 
Revelation because I really think that's the encouraging piece. That's what makes this book hopeful. That's what makes this book relevant and accessible to us, okay? So with that being said, speaking of Christ in context, we're gonna get into Revelation chapter 13 today. If you were with us last week, we were in Revelation 12 and Revelation 12 is actually the the immediate context for this chapter. We see it in the last verse of of chapter 12 and verse 17. There's actually this, this, this verse about the dragon standing out on the seashore. There's kind of this foreshadowing that happens there. The, the chapter itself ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger because you're wondering to yourself, okay, what is it that the dragon's about to do, right? He's, atta- he's, he's tried to attack uh, the child. He's tried to devour the child, but he's been defeated by Jesus and his, his victory and his resurrection. And then now he's gone after the woman and her offspring, but he hasn't been successful in doing that. And so now he's standing on the seashore and we're wondering to ourselves, what exactly is he going to do next? Well, chapter 13 gives us detail of what happens after that point in John's vision. Now, I think the best way to interpret and understand chapter 12 is that it's a heading for the chapters that will follow. And so chapter 12 describes for us in, in, kind of, in, in, general, in a general way that this is what the dragon has been after since the beginning. Right? Once he found out God's redemptive plan was to come through this child, he tries to devour the child. When he's not successful in devouring the child, instead he gets defeated through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He then turns his attention to go after the woman, go after her offspring, which are represented by God, which, which represent God's people, and then he makes war on them throughout. And then in chapters 13, beginning in 13 and following, we get a detailed description of how he does that. Right? Because all we're told in chapter 12 is that he breathes water or he spews water out of his mouth to attack the woman who is out in the wilderness. And then the ground swallows it up, right? And we know that that's metaphorical, right? Us as, us as Christians, we're not going to be walking down the street and see a seven-headed red dragon that's going to start spewing water after us and then see the ground swallowed up as God's provision. It's a metaphor. So the question is, what is it that is that spewing out, that water that comes out, and how does God protect us in that? Well, chapter 13 begins to explain that to us. So as we start into chapter 13, again, we're going to handle this in two parts, and this is going to be a true two-parter in the sense that we're going to introduce some things that won't really get tied together until next week, but these two uh, passages will go together in that way, okay? So uh, that being said, let's dive into Revelation chapter 13, and what I want to do is I want to read the last verse in chapter 12 first, which is verse 17, because again, it ties, it, it ties those two ideas together, what happened in 12 and then what's going to happen in 13. In 17, it says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Chapter 13, it says this, And then I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming the name and his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And all authority was given it over to every tribe and every people and language and nation. 
and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Okay, so as we just read from chapter 12, right, there's this question of what exactly is the dragon going to do next? And the first thing we see him do is he kind of calls these beasts that come out of the sea. We see the first one in this chapter, or this part of the chapter, we'll see the next one in the next chapter. And I think as we, as we kind of put this together and we read the description of what the beast does in this chapter, one thing that we begin to realize is that the way that the dragon, one of the strategies that the dragon has is that is he's going to use some kind of power or authority on earth in terms of kingdoms and kings to, to kind of make his influence and make his war against those who are the offspring of the woman, those who are God's people and God's purposes and God's kingdom in this world. And so the imagery of both chapters 12 and 13 shows us that one of the, men, one of the main ways that Satan wages war against God's kingdom and God's people is through his influence of e- on evil kings and evil kingdoms throughout the world and throughout history. And the reason for it is established all the way back in chapter 12. Remember that not only did the dragon, the red dragon from chapter 12, have seven heads, but he had seven crowns on each one of those heads, or a crown on each one of those seven heads. Of course, represents um, authority, in particular government authority. We've seen that throughout uh, the book of Revelation. Um, And what we see here is the dragon is kind of faking it till he makes it, right? He's emulating what he feels like is his authority and what he wants to be his authority. And he's emulating what is rightfully God's authority that he's given to Jesus as the one who is the one true king. And so what Satan has done from that point forward is tried to thwart the plan of God so that he could overthrow the authority of God and become the king and ruler himself. There's this cosmic struggle that's gone on since the very beginning. So, by the time we get to chapter 12, though, we realize that Satan has been defeated because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension now. He rules on the throne of heaven, and he is the one who is the rightful king. So now that Satan knows he's defeated, we're in chapter 13 here, he now chases after God's people, and he wants to try to destroy as much as he can. And the way that he does that is a way that's actually pretty seemingly effective. I mean, we can say that Satan is a lot of things, but he's definitely not dumb, right? And he realizes and understands that in order to, pres- in order to, uh, uh, to spread as much chaos and destruction and death as possible, you want to gain as much power as you can in the world. And he knows that if you can gain the heart of a king, then you can gain the kingdom. And if you can gain enough kingdoms, then you can sway and impact the world. As we see from this vision, that seems to be what he's been doing since this time. This beast represents his influence on kingdoms and kings throughout history. And so these kingdoms represented as the beasts here in chapter 3, and then will be represented by Babylon in the chapters to come, multiply brokenness through what they do. Chaos and destruction everywhere. Remember the judgment, the seal and the trumpet judgments that we saw a few months ago when we went through that section. You saw things like a famine and war and disease and injustice and all these things that are happening, right? These things are very difficult to accomplish through an individual or a group, but if you can turn the hearts of nations and if you can turn kingdoms, these things can be accomplished. And this seems to be what Satan is doing through the influence of this beastly figure. Now, we have to kind of back up a little bit in some ways and say this, that this doesn't necessarily mean that because Satan does this that every kingdom or every political figure is an evil pawn of the dragon. 
I think it's much more complicated than that, and we have to remember to use discernment about when we apply passages like this. In fact, Romans chapter 13 tells us that as Christians we're to submit to government authority and that all authority comes from God. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 says this, Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a, a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words, there's justice there. And in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the question becomes, if, we're, if government is established by God, and it's God's idea, and it's here for our good, which is what Romans 13 says in, in many ways, and yet there is this influence that happens with the beast and sin and brokenness as a part of human governments and kingdoms in this world, what do we do as Christians living in the world today? How do we know the difference between the two? How, do we, uh, how does human authority function in a broken world that we live in? And what's the priority of a Christian when it comes to living under authority and under government authority in particular? Where do we submit? What do we support? Where, do we, where might we resist? Right? These are big questions, I think, with, com with complex answers. And Revelation 13, believe it or not, helps us kind of answer those questions a little bit by looking at really, in an unexpected way, the description of the beast. If we're to ask ourselves, where do we see the beast active? John's giving us a description and his vision of exactly what the beast looks like. And these images represent actual activities and the nature of that beast and the fruit of what his government would bring or his influence would bring. So first notice, and we'll start here in, in, in verse 1, we actually see four things that are important to notice. First of all, notice that the dragon calls out the beast from the sea in this scene. So it's clear that the beasts are summoned by the calling of the dragon. They're summoned by the, by the dragon's will for his purposes to respond to his calling. The dragon, of course, being Satan. And so here's the thing about governments and kingdoms and kings and power. The fact that governments and kingdoms and kings exist is not evil in and of itself. I mean, this is not an anti-government passage. We just saw from Romans 13 how government is pleasing to God. It's God's design. It's for our good. Those kinds of things. And we know that throughout this entire force of the book of Revelation, we have seen Jesus as king as we look forward to his eternal kingdom. Right? If you're going to be in heaven, you're going to be under a government. You're going to be under the kingdom of Jesus who is your king. And so governing authority and authority in our life is actually a good thing. But the beast display a government and authority that does not serve God's will, instead serves the will of the dragon. And they're a beast because they oppose God's will on earth, they oppose God's king on earth, and they oppose God's people and his kingdom on earth. And they're a beast because they spread the sin or the, or the, the effects of sin and evil throughout their rule in the way that they do things. Secondly, notice that the beast comes out of the sea. And we talked about this last week, but this picture of raging water, or in particular big bodies of water like the sea, uh, is a picture typically in Scripture and in the ancient world as a place of danger, as a place of chaos, and a place of destruction, and maybe even death. And in this case, that's what we see here, is that the, the beast rises from the sea, he rises from the abyss, which is a place of darkness and death, and I think it's important to take note of where he comes from, because the place where he comes from also seems to represent the nature of his kingdom. 
is that as he comes, as he comes from the sea, he promotes death and evil and chaos and destruction in the way that he rules. Another way of putting that is that the curse of sin is magnified through the government and the ruling of sin by the beast's influence. Third, we're told that the beast has ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on the, the horns. And as we've seen already, horn, uh, when we see the symbol of horns or the representation of horns, horns represent power and crowns represent kind of government authority. And so you might be reminded, for example, of the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5, where John sees him as a lamb who was slain, but also a lamb who has seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the full power of Jesus and the full wisdom of Jesus to reign in a way that is faithful according to God's will. Well, in this case, and and actually in Revelation 19, we haven't seen it yet, but we'll see Jesus crowned as the Lord of Lords, who has given many crowns and many diadems as he's proclaimed Lord of Lords. In each case, right, Jesus is seen, both in Revelation 5 and Revelation 19, Jesus is seen as the one true king with true power and true authority who rules completely according to God's wisdom and God's will. Now, what we see here is kind of an emulation or a false claim of authority, a false claim to lead by the beast. He has he has these, these kind of these, these seven crowns and these horns, but they're a direct, and they're a direct challenge to the authority of Jesus, but in a way that is meant to claim a throne that is not his, and to claim kingdoms and to lead kingdoms that are actually fallen instead of kingdoms uh, that are eternal, uh, led by Jesus. So here, here how, or, or the kingdom that is led by Jesus. So the contrast between the rule of Jesus and the rule of the dragon is brought to focus here, is that even though the beast may look like he has full authority, we know and we understand in reading this that he's kind of faking it along, along the way. The dragon and the beast can claim all they want, but those claims are exposed to be false. And so forth, the fourth thing we see in, in verse 1 about the beast is that the beast has what are called blasphemous names on his heads. And what exactly is that blasphemy? Uh, G.K. Beale, uh, who is a uh, Uh, A scholar um, who's written a great commentary on the book of Revelation says this, the epitome of of blasphemy is to attribute deity to someone who is is not God. So blasphemy is attributing something that is not a deity to something that is not God or to someone who is not God. And so not only does the beast have blasphemous names on his head, but we see in verses 5 and 6, this is a big part of what he does. He utters blasphemy into the world about God and about God's people and about God's purposes. And in fact, that word, uh, the word blasphemy is joined with the word haughty, which means that he's kind of a, uh, he's a braggart, and he's bringing kind of the, the attention onto himself, essentially saying, I am the one who is truly in, uh, uh, making himself kind of godlike. I am the one who is truly in authority. I am the one who rules and has, and has rightful rule. And so as John is seeing this vision, he probably couldn't help but think about the correlations that he saw in the Roman Empire. We talked earlier about the Roman Empire was designed uh, primarily by an imperial cult in reference to their religion and their understanding of who their emperors were. What this meant is that the emperors actually uh, viewed themselves as godlike, and they expected the citizens of Rome to worship them in a very similar fashion. In fact, uh, in Asia Minor, which which is the region of the Roman Empire where all the seven churches of Revelation were in from, from earlier in the book, Right? That was a place where there were temples and altars that were dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperors. This would have been per, uh, very personal for John, not only because he was familiar with it in the Roman Empire, uh, but Domitian, who was the emperor who put John out into exile on the island of Patmos, where John is now, 
actually uh, made people call him our Lord and God. So our Lord and God Domitian. So as John is seeing this and he's hearing the, the beast who gives blasphemous claims about who he is, he probably can't help but think that there is something happening right there in the Roman Empire that represents that very thing. But of course, the Roman emperors weren't the only ones and aren't the only ones throughout history who have thought that they were divine or compelled people to worship them uh, with God-like authority over them. The beast doesn't just represent Rome in this case. The beast represents all those kinds of rulers and kingdoms who oppress and who rule with a God-like fist over the people they lead. Starting in, verse 10, or starting in verse 2 then, after we've gotten through all these descriptions, we go back to verse 2. What we see is that John describes the beast in a little bit more detail, a little bit of a different way. He says he sees him as a leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. Now, if this is your first time coming across this imagery, you might be thinking to yourself, what in the world is that all about? I mean, to just get your mind around something that looks like a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion is kind of a wild image. But if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you may know that this is a direct connection and reference to the book of Daniel, in particular Daniel chapter 7. This is probably the most um, iconic, influential piece of the book of Daniel. It's when Daniel has his vision of the four beasts. And the first three beasts are, you guessed it, a leopard, a bear, and a lion that he sees. And they're all wrapped up with this fourth beastly image, right? And, and what he sees is that these beasts actually rise one by one out of the sea. So that when we get to Revelation 13, the connection is there. The context of Daniel 7 uh, is, is, is kind of around this imagery as well. But what we see is that all three beasts are incorporated in the one beast, who is the fourth beast that comes out of the sea in this case. And uh, it's interesting to see what Daniel says in Daniel 7 about the fourth beast. Right? All these three beasts are kind of beasts that, that, are, that, are, that are designed to represent kind of kingdoms and kings that have come and gone, one replacing the other. But then we get to the fourth beast, and it's kind of open-ended. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, Daniel says this, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up, there, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which of the first three horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things, or we might say speaking haughty or blasphemous things. Now, where the three, where the three beasts kind of before this ruled for a period of time, this fourth beast is kind of left open-ended. He is the one, and, and I think when and we get to Revelation 13, there's a clear connection being made there that this fourth beast is the one that essentially rules until Jesus comes back. And his rulership and his influence looks different in one era, from one kingdom, from one uh, nation, from one king to another, but he is the one behind all of the opposition to God's people and God's kingdom in the world. So rather than kind of looking at the beast, I think, and saying that he must represent some particular kingdom like Rome or in, uh, if you're old enough to remember during the Cold War, right, this was often identified as Russia, maybe, um, or some other kingdom that's to come. I think the best interpretation seems to be that the beast represents all of the kings and kingdoms that oppose God. And even more to the point that metaphorically they represent the elements of all human kingdoms that try to oppose God and try to work against God's kingdom and people on the earth. G.K. Beale says, says this, For John, the current embodiment of the chaos monster is Rome. But he sees Rome as a residual a legacy of all the pagan empires of the past. 
and of the evil spirit inspiring Rome as potentially able to dominate other world empires after Rome. Right? The dragon and the beast include world empires of the past and the present and potentially the future. Now look, each empire or kingdom might display this reality a little bit differently. We can look throughout history and make our own conclusions about that. Rome is probably an obvious example because it's in the immediate context, but Rome is not the, other, Rome is not the only one. And one thing we realize in all of this is that as sinful people, sinful people build governments, we build systems, and as a result, our sin and brokenness gets into those systems as well, get into those governments to differing degrees. And the beast uses those things, the, dra- uh, the beast under the influence of the dragon, so to speak, uses those things in certain ways to maneuver and move them in ways that are destructive. And this is where it goes to this place of the dragon giving any and all authority that he has to the beast. Now, here's the point of this all. The dragon does have authority, he does have influence, he does have power in our world, but in the end, his authority is merely an illusion and it's a temporary thing. Because he does not have all full authority, he does not have the authority that King Jesus has, and his time, as we saw at the end of chapter 12, is limited. And so we're encouraged by this, and we're told, at the, in fact, at the end of verse 10, to realize that even though, there's a little kind of saying there, that might have been a saying from the early church, that for those who are forced to go into captivity, for, in other words, for those believers who are forced to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. For those who die by the sword as a result of being persecuted, they will die by the sword. But in the end, this is a calling to persevere in faith as the saints, which is a pretty, a pretty challenging thing, I think, for us to get our heads around. But I think when you see the difference between the reaction and the, uh, when you see the difference between what happens when the beast has his influence, which is that people are worshiping the beast, literally what happens in verse 4 is that people, the masses, who are described as the people on the earth, those who are not sealed by the Lamb in, 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 in the heavenly re- uh, vision, but those who are referred to as earth dwellers, those who have uh, rejected Jesus as king, give their devotion and worship to the beast, according to verse 4. Right? You see this phrase that, where they say, Who is like the beast? That may sound familiar to you. That's a refrain that's often used in the Old Testament to refer to God in saying, who is like the Lord? Who is like our God? For instance, in Psalm 113, verse 5, it says, who is like the Lord our God? Uh, Psalm 89, verse 8, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And, and Psalm 35, 10, O Lord, who is like you? And this phrase communicates, it's obviously a phrase of worship, but it communicates at least a couple things. There is no one like our God. There is no one who is worthy of our worship. There is no one else, no other thing, no other power. And you see how that gets twisted in this vision here. That doesn't mean mean ultimately that people are literally going to say that, but it does represent the fact that they have given their full devotion and worship to the systems and powers of this world. And I think this hits a lot closer to home then we might realize when we live in such a political time where uh, politics often commands our devotion and commands our focus in so many different ways. You see people, I mean, it's been well remarked that over the past three decades, people have uh, gone to church less and less, but they've gotten more and more involved in their political camps and more and more devoted to their political camps. It's almost like there's this religious fervor that gives an identity, that gives a kind of a doctrine, that gives community, gives everything that church used to give you. Now we're getting it from politics or influence in the world. And so this hits this hits home. It doesn't, you know, we don't necessarily need to be living in ancient Rome or Nazi Germany to see the beast working and the beast active in our worlds. He'll take whatever he can and he'll direct however he can in whatever way he can do it to distract and attempt and to persecute those um, who are in his way. And so this is why we could say 
that the beast in this passage, I think, represents all kinds of governments, at least where the beast has influence. Sometimes that influence is more prominent and obvious than others, from nation to nation, or from you know, one era of a nation to another era of a nation, but it's always there. The truth is there's no perfect government, no perfect ruler until Jesus comes back. And until he comes back, the dragon will continue to make war on God's purposes, God's kingdom, and God's people. Now here, I want to finish with this idea of hope. We say that the, we've said throughout the book of Revelation that this is a book that's full of hope. We have hope right here that happens in this chapter, even though there's so much craziness and chaos going on. There's so much flexing and yelling about the beast and those kinds of things. Notice in verse 3, it says that the beast seemed to have a mortal wound on his head. John sees a wound that happens on the beast's head, and he describes it as a mortal wound, in other words, a death blow. If you were with us last week in, Genesis, or in, in, in excuse me, Revelation 12, we talked about Genesis 3, the promise that God makes after sin enters the picture during the curse. And he says, there will be one who is an offspring of a woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. When you get to Revelation chapter 13, I don't think that image is on accident. What we see here is that John sees that, of course, the dragon or the beast that comes from the dragon has a mortal wound on his head. In other words, that he has been defeated, and he is one who stands in defeat. And Jesus has accomplished what he has been sent to do. So the background of this is Genesis 3, but also Revelation chapter 5, where we see that Jesus has ascended to the throne in heaven, and he has won the victory on our behalf. And he has won the victory over this beast who may masquerade as someone who has authority and influence in the world, but in the end, as John sees, is one with a mortal wound. And it's only a matter of time until that mortal wound ends up destroying him and taking him and taking him down. So in this portrayal of the beast from thir- uh, chapter 13, we see this mortal wound, but I think what's kind of interesting about this is that John says it's, it's immediately healed, right? He sees it happen, there's a mortal wound, and there's a healing that happens there. I think we have to see this from what it is. It's a metaphorical picture of what essentially deception looks like in the world. As the beast goes forward, even though he is defeated, he will present to the world that he is the one who is victorious, and he is the one who provides righteousness and truth and all the things that we are looking for in a kingdom as human beings. But at the same time, as we know What God has told us and what God reveals to us and what John sees in this vision is that that beast is ultimately defeated and he will not reign forever. So verse 10 then encourages a call for endurance and faith in the saints. This is a call to remember that Jesus is king and that the beast's claims are false and his kingdoms are fallen. That Jesus is the only one with the right to claim the eternal kingdom on his behalf and for his glory. And more likely, I think as we we look at this, um, as, we, as we think about what it looks like to live as Christians under government authority, we're called to persevere and to be faithful to Jesus alone. And although we might be tempted and distracted and, yes, maybe even persecuted in certain ways, right, the calling that we are called to is a hope that comes from Jesus and his kingdom. As G.K. Beale again puts it, he says, Christians are to obey the state because it was ordained by God. But when the state oversteps its bounds and demands religious worship of itself, then Christians are not to submit, but they are to submit to the punishments that the state decrees for this non-compliance. Now for the Christian, we live now in a world under the authority of kings who rule fallen kingdoms. That's the reality of a fallen world that we live in. Each one is different, and our engagement or resistance to that may look different depending on where we are, who we are, what place we're at in, 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 in society, whatever it may be. But in each one, the calling is the same, to remember that Jesus is our king and that his kingdom is not of this world. 
We're called to worship Jesus through the engagement in fallen kingdoms. Uh, understanding that it's rarely as cut and dry as this political figure or that political figure being good or bad or that nation being fully good or that nation being fully bad. In reality, in all of these things, we're called to be faithful to the kingdom that matters no matter what we face. And whenever a, uh, whenever a political figure or a government calls you to an allegiance that violates your allegiance to Jesus, you can be sure that they are trying to change your heart. And you can be sure that you're seeing an influence in some way of the beast that's even mentioned in this chapter. So in our engagement with kingdoms of this world, we, can, we should work for, and cha- for change and resist what is evil. To change what is evil to good if we can, but in many ways we have to realize that evil will just exist until Jesus comes back. And so, as we, as we submit to government authority, we submit where it's appropriate, we support what's appropriate, we support those things that are for flourishing and for blessing in the world, and we resist as much as we can the evil that is in this world, we realize that in all stages and at all times, we are looking forward to the King who will come. And He is our hope in the end. And again, this is a call to faithfulness in all situations and all generations. You know, I mentioned earlier that this is the place, part of Revelation, that is commonly associated with what is known as the Antichrist. And I haven't mentioned too much of that because when you say that, I think, again, people want to like assign an Antichrist to one figure. But I think as we look at this and we look at places like 1 John chapter 2, John says, now many Antichrists have already come. He's talking about, in the, he wrote that in the first century, right? That this is more about the Antichrists that come rather than it is kind of avoiding one guy who may set up one world government one day. And if we can just avoid that, then we'll be good. Now the reality is these things exist and have existed since the beginning. And the dragon and the beast are at work um, at, in every, in every situation we find ourselves in. So again, Revelation is not, re, it's not about reading it like a treasure map to try to figure out if we can figure out when you know, the end of the world will come, but it's about being faithful to Jesus in every generation and in every place that we find ourselves in for the sake of his kingdom. Now, I want to finish by reading from Daniel's vision here. So the last thing we'll do, we'll close with this. Um, but uh, I'm going back to Daniel chapter 7. We'll take us back there. And the verses that follow the, the vision that we saw earlier, the piece of Daniel's vision that we saw earlier, are really where we find our hope. Because what Daniel is describing and what he sees in the vision is what we might know as what we've called the final judgment in the book of Revelation. But what we also see here is a reference to the beast kind of being finally destroyed and then the Son of Man, who is Jesus, coming to his throne and reigning forever in his kingdom full of his glory. And so I want to read this as just an opportunity for us to close with hope and knowing that this is where our hope lies in the end. And when you see the phrase ancient of days, that refers to God in case you're not familiar with that because that's referred to a couple of times here. But then Daniel sees this in verse 9. After I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, the myriads again that we see in Revelation, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And I looked because of the sound of the great words of the horn that was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and for a time. Now I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's our hope. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for uh, your goodness and faithfulness, which is shown in every scene of, of this book of Revelation. And, and Lord, we're asking uh, this morning, as we consider what these words might mean and how they might direct our hearts, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and discernment, and that you would protect our hearts. Lord, that you would uh, show us what you mean to show us and how you, me- how you mean for us to understand these things. Um, in, in many ways, I resonate with Paul. We, we see uh, through a mirror dimly even the best things that we see. And so we approach these words with humility, knowing, Lord, that you will direct us by your Spirit, and we trust in that. We ask for wisdom as we live, as we live in a world that is full of distraction and temptation, and maybe even in some cases persecution. We ask, Lord, that you would, as, as verse 10 challenges us here, uh, that we would heed the call and the challenge to be faithful and, Lord, to endure where we need to endure. And in every situation, that we would see the hope of Jesus and his kingdom as our true home. We would ache for those things. Those things would drive us. Lord, that the goodness of your kingdom and the glory of our Savior and King would outshine anything else in this world that wants to grab our attention. That is the ultimate purpose of this book, that we would see the glory of who Jesus is. And so, Lord, no matter what we have uh, kind of worked through this morning, may we see that in the end. The glory of Jesus, that we'd fix our eyes upon him and pray all these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. A great reminder, he won't fail. He won't fail in any situation you're facing. And I know that's encouragement for all of us as we continue to move through some seasons and some things that are, that are difficult and tough and burdensome right now. And so speaking of that, of course, we like to say we've always been encouraged, we've been encouraged as a church to bear one another's burdens whenever those things come up. So we like to talk about that in terms of prayer. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is by praying for one another. That's a practical way that we bear one another's burdens. And so um, Steve's gonna, Steve is our prayer partner for today. Is that right, Steve? Yeah. I think so. So Steve's our prayer partner for the day. Even if he's not, he'll pray for you. He's, he, lo- he loves to pray for people, so he'll pray for you even if he's not. But uh, if, you want, if you need somebody to, to pray for you, Steve's over there, and he will pray with you as, as you leave uh, today. Um, or if you want to fill out one of our, uh, another way you can get um, prayed for is, is by being supported by some of our prayer team and our staff. We pray over these prayer requests every week, and so if you have a prayer request, go write it on one of those prayer cards located at the table with the cross on it in the back. Put it in the offering stand as you leave here this morning, and we'll make sure that that gets to the right place so we can be praying with you as well. Whatever's going on in your life, there's something going on with a family member even, we love praying for that because I know that that affects you as well. So, um, so yeah, uh, as, as Wes said earlier, whether you have an 0 for 7 week or a 7 for 7 week, would you see the, the goodness and the joy of Jesus? We do pray you have a 7 for 7 week this week, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. 
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.